Hi, this is Lisa, and you are listening to I Love That Movie. This podcast is for movie lovers. It's not an unbiased opinion. It's not a straightforward review. It's just a couple people talking about a movie that they love. The format is each week I have a guest, and that guest and I discuss a movie that they love, something they're obsessed with, something they connect with. We'll talk about the plot, the director, and the actors, but we'll also talk about the personal connection my guest has with that movie. So if that sounds like something you want to listen to, keep listening. This is Lisa, and you're listening to I Love That Movie. Um, if you want to reach out to me, you can on Twitter under AYA Lisa Cosplay. I'm also on Instagram under AYA and as a Nancy AMI Lisa. And we have a closed Facebook group called I Love That Movie. The group is closed, but just send a request and I'll add you. It's just a safe space for movie lovers to discuss their favorite films, judgment-free. My only rule is just keep it positive. Um, And if you like what you heard today, please subscribe and rate the show. Uh, If you leave a positive review on iTunes, uh, you will be entered to win a $20 gift card to a movie theater chain of your choice. I'm going to draw once we get to 30. Right now we're at 23 reviews, so we only got seven more. Uh, it's, uh, easy money. So go ahead and leave one today. Uh, I have a new guest on the show today and that is Curtis. Say hi, Curtis. Hey, Lisa. Thanks for having me. Oh, for sure. And, uh, for our audience, would you mind introducing yourself a little bit? Sure. Not at all. So, uh, I'm Curtis. Uh, I am part of a, uh, recording group called the D6 Desperados. We are primarily a gaming and entertainment podcast, and we do uh, a little segment called Throwback Theater, where we talk about old movies. But uh, in addition to that, just personally, I am a lover of all kinds of different genre movies. And um, when I heard about your podcast, I thought, as soon as we started talking about this, I thought, I got to find a way to get on this. Because I'm sure that there's a movie that you haven't done yet that I would love to talk about. And I'm glad we found one. Yeah, we did. And I want to mention really quick before we get into your movie choice, I uh, listened to a couple episodes of your podcast and really enjoyed it. I loved listening. Oh, to, thank you. Yeah, I listened to the uh, the Child's Play episode and I realized listening to it that I had not seen that movie all the way through. <laughs> right. That, and I, that happens yeah. to us a lot. <laughs> <laughs> it's like it's been on a bunch. Uh, in my life, but because I didn't grow up with horror the way that my husband did, he had seen it mm-hmm. a bunch of times and I hadn't. So I listened to that episode and then I immediately went home that evening and watched it. So thank oh, you for that. Oh, that's great. Yeah. yeah, I'm glad you enjoyed it. For yeah, sure. we uh, we try and, and uh, stay pretty irreverent uh, oh, for sure, about, but it's about the, the movies <laughs> that we get. But uh, yeah, no, I'm, I'm glad you enjoy it. Yeah, it's more along the vein of like, how did this get made, which is another podcast <laughs> I love. And I like that, so I appreciate it. So just want to say that. Um, cool. But you're right. You had a list. You you provided me with a list of movies you wanted to talk about, actually. I did. <laughs> I wanted to cover that. all my bases just in case <laughs> you had a particular genre you wanted to do or something like that. So For sure. Well, I tossed the ball back to your court and I said, well, what, what are the, the main ones you want to talk about? What's like the main one? And I think your first choice ha- was already taken. So we went with your second choice, which is the dark crystal. Yes. 
And I was excited about this because this is a movie that's not huge in my wheelhouse, but I recognize the cultural impact that it's had and mm-hmm. how many fans, even just mentioning it briefly on Twitter, I had people sort of reaching out to me and saying, oh, they were excited. So I'm I'm excited to talk about this one. Uh, it's, oh, it's, very cool. Yeah. And, and so we'll kind of dive in to, to your fandom. Uh, you know, did you see this movie in theaters or how did you see this movie? Uh, right. Well, so I'm I'm a 80s kid, but uh, this came out in 1982, so I was too young to see it in theaters. So the first time I would have seen it would been would have been on VHS. But it's um in in my life anyway, it has it's one of those movies that was always present. Like there was never a time where I didn't like kind of know about it because mm-hmm. we watched it a ton. My me and my brothers we watched it a ton when we were younger. So kind of like the same way um Star Wars was for me. There was never a time when I didn't know what Star Wars was or and and the same for this. Uh so I didn't see it in theaters when it came out. I did recently see it at uh, the drive-in theater though. Oh cool. Uh, in, yeah, in Fort Worth they have the Coyote Drive-in yes. and they did a double feature with uh Dark Crystal and Labyrinth. Oh, that's and, great. Yeah, it was a great time. It was a great time. But uh, I probably wore out two or maybe even three VHS copies of this throughout my throughout my childhood. Oh my gosh, that is so funny that you say that. Uh, my close friend Kara, who's been on the show a couple times, she she told me she did that with. Uh, I think it was Indiana Jones. Uh, the Last Crusade, and I thought that was so funny. Uh-huh. I like I've never personally worn. I've had many VHS tapes. I've never personally worn one out. So that's that's impressive. Two copies. I like that. Oh yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. And that's that was a disaster back then because oh for sure there's you couldn't just do. get on Amazon and get another one. <laughs> <laughs> I like that you saw it on VHS too because I think my earliest memory of this film was probably like on the Disney Channel or something like that. Or, or on TV, I think is how yeah. I saw it. I don't think I ever like rented it or like that's that's the authentic way of seeing it. I feel like like you weren't just like stumbling upon it. You like purposefully saw it. Yeah, and I'm not really even sure why we why we had that in our house because my parents were kind of a little picky about the sort of content. Like there were a lot of things that they would not let us watch. And um, despite being billed as a kids movie, there's some pretty intense stuff in this. And it's a little surprising that it made the cut, to be honest, now that I go back (laughs) and think about it. But yeah, um, we loved it. Yeah, I think I think for me, like as a little kid, it probably was a little bit scary. I know that like, I really loved never ending story and even that was Mm -hmm. a little little frightening for i remember the first time i saw it i had to really like steal myself and i think you're right about this one it's pretty dark um and it's got a lot of plot and yeah it's kind of heavy for a kid's movie really definitely so yeah Yeah, it's Uh, it's pretty dense it, it is i know today like i was telling you i uh before we started recording that I I watched it and then I actually went and read the synopsis because I, I just felt like there was so much ground that was covered that to be able to talk about it, I wanted to read more about it because I feel like it, it seems like it's a movie that you need to see a couple of times too. At least. Yeah, I, I agree. Yeah, it's definitely a, a situation where there's a lot more going on than it appears at mm-hmm. first. There's a, a lot of a lot of uh, subtle things going on in the background, world building type things. And um, we'll probably get into that a little bit later, but like the, the amount of work that the Jim Henson's team and um, the, the lead 
concept designer Brian Froud that they put into like all of the lore and the mythology of this world. Yeah. It's just incredible. Like the amount of stuff that's in the background that's in the movie technically, because it's a part of what makes the setting, but it's never overtly called out. Right. No, completely agree. And before I get any further, I'm going to read the synopsis really quick. Sure. And then we'll jump into a couple of quick facts. Yeah. So here we go. The dark crystal. Uh, Jen, raised by a noble race called the Mystics, has been told he's the last survivor of his own race, the Gelflings. He sets out to try to find a shard of the Dark Crystal, a powerful gem that once provided balance to the universe. After the crystal was broken, the evil Skeksis is... Am I saying that right? I should have Skeksis, asked Skeksis, yeah, or Skeksis. Skeksis, okay. Skeksis, okay. The evil Skeksis used sinister means to gain control. Jen believes that he can repair the Dark Crystal and bring peace to the world. If only he can find the remaining shard. Very nice. Yeah, it doesn't encompass it in everything, a but it's, yeah, <laughs> it's kind of a rough synopsis of it. Yeah, um, there's a lot to unpack there. Uh, I, I was reading that early drafts of the script featured Jen and Kira traveling through the underworld, where they encountered a race of underground mining creatures, and that concept later was integrated into Fraggle Rock. Into Fraggle Rock, yeah, yeah. that's awesome. Which came out in 1983. That's actually the year I was born. So I was like, oh, oh like okay. um, I think for me, uh, Fraggle Rock was definitely a part of my upbringing, and I always recognized that there was a connection. But I thought it was cool to read. There's a very you know specific connection, so I thought that was kind of yeah, cool. yeah. The Henson Group is uh, a little notorious for kind of like cross-pollinating and, yeah. and little ways like that. There's a lot of, uh, there's things that are in the, some of the concept art for Dark Crystal that never made it in that you'll end up seeing in other stuff. Like if you ever saw Jim Henson's Storyteller. or oh, I um, uh, Yeah, so that was like a whole series of little, I'll, I'll get off on a tangent here. But no, you're totally fine. We love tangents. It's, uh, <laughs> it, it was a, a show that they did on HBO where they took like fables and stories and then they would use live actors and puppets and kind of do retellings and there's like character designs and stuff that are actually from uh, older movies or older uh, Muppet productions that just never got used. And then they kind of repurpose them a little bit and do something different. So, you know, you mentioned earlier the darkness in the film. Well, Jim Henson's plan with the film was to get back to like the darkness of the original grim fairy tales. Because yeah. Like children kind of in a way liked being scared and that's a healthy emotion, which I actually agree with. It's sort of. This, I do too. Yeah. And it's sort of the same thing that like Guillermo del Toro mentioned when he did like Pan's Labyrinth. It's like, mm-hmm. I mean, as a child, you experience fear. And there's a lot of kids that love horror movies and scary movies. Like, it's strange that we act like it's something no kid can handle when really I, I think sometimes they kind of crave it a little bit, like that danger and that darkness. So I, Absolutely. I like that. I like that about this movie. Yeah. Yeah. I think um, I think it was Stephen King who had talked about how we we chase the feeling of horror or scary stuff because that's a way that you can experience it in a safe environment. It's Very a scary true. emotion that you can sort of control because mm-hmm. you're watching it. Right. That's the same reason you would go to, uh, you know, like a haunted house or something like that. Of course. Yeah. And I think on some level, yeah, maybe children don't want to be absolutely terrified and not sleep, but maybe they got like <laughs> right. a little bit of a little bit of scary. Yeah, it's a balance. Yeah, definitely. Um, something that I, you know, like when, when I was renting it and me and uh, my husband were watching it, he said, so is this the one where there's no people in it and it's all puppets? 
And funny enough, I had never thought of it that way. But yeah, uh, they kind of held this movie as the first live action movie to not have people in it. And I think you like yeah. forget watching it. Oh, absolutely. I do. Even watching it um, uh, recently, uh, I, mm -hmm. I watched it today just in kind of preparation for this. And it's like you you really get lost in it. And yeah. everything is it, it maintains such a consistent aesthetic because, again, they did all this work to to try and make a real world that you could kind of get easily sucked into. And it had to be just believable enough that it's not kind of um, disruptive to the audience to see it. It doesn't come off as hyper fantastic. It, it feels very organic and real. But, yeah, there are no humans ever. So crazy. I, I really never thought about that. I think I sort of, in my mind, kind of lumped it in with labyrinth and mm -hmm. thought there yeah, were people yeah in it. <laughs> often often paired with that yeah yeah and so when i sat down to watch it i was like oh yeah you're right um i also had read that you know uh there was some struggle to get this movie off the ground a little bit um as it got closer you know early audiences didn't receive it well and they had to make changes and i think that played into them kind of slashing the marketing budget and so right. jim henson believed so much in the project he actually bought the rights to the movie to like just make sure this got made make sure that yeah. this got out there which is really cool um it's a risk but i mean i think that in the long run, it, it paid off. And, you know, we can kind of talk more about that as we get into it. But I thought totally. that was interesting. Another interesting contributing factor to uh, them eventually greenlighting the production of this was uh, the audience's response to Yoda in Empire Strikes Back. Oh, wow. Because that was kind of a cultural um, test to see how would people react to, like, a not a silly Muppet, but something that was meant to be uh, a real character in a film. Yeah. And uh, so they, they uh, drew like some direct um, contributions from that, that when people responded positively to Yoda, that kind of gave them a little more clout and ability to present this. Oh yeah. We did an episode, a, a couple episodes on a new hope and uh, Empire mm -hmm. Strikes Back. And we, we talked a lot about how like, that, that's such a huge risk, like Yoda, really, because, I mean, it's Frank Oz, you've already heard his voice yeah. um, as a Muppet, and so uh -huh. it's like, he's basically a, a Muppet, I mean, he's made out of rubber, and it's, you know, outside the context of the film, that's obvious, so how, how does he become a serious, believable character in a story that doesn't really have a lot of those, and yeah, right. I agree, like, I feel like we forget how incredible that is, and yeah, that makes sense that that would lead people to or lead studios to trust Jim Henson that he can, he can do world building in a way that yeah. maybe they hadn't thought about. Um, did you have any other quick facts you wanted to toss in? Oh gosh, I have so many, <laughs> <laughs> so many facts. No, um, I think um, mostly I'll, I'll try and just uh, as, as we go through the, the plot, I'll sort sure. of um, plop in there. But um, I, I think I'll just say like, as a uh, as kind of a general guideline for the world building, Henson pulled from a lot of his studies from the 70s about um, balance and harmony and this kind of metaphysical study of uh, things in flux and compensating for each other. And there's so much of that in the movie. Like sometimes, sometimes it's kind of figurative and in the background, and sometimes it is very literal, where they talk about things splitting into two 
yeah, uh, that's true. core parallel identities. And that's that's like kind of a deep topic for, again, what is ostensibly a, a kid's movie. And I would not call it a kid's movie, but it's um, it's presented as such. But it actually right. has a lot of really kind of important undertones about balance and how things are uh all things are interconnected and and pushing and pulling and and all of that and i just i appreciate uh a movie that will uh incorporate some sort of an ideology even if it's not something that i necessarily agree with that it's it's part of what is important to the message of the movie because that that kind of brings it all together no i i completely agree especially when you're doing world building like this we need to have like clear rules and laws in place so that, you know, it's not like a free for all the whole movie and we don't know why things are happening or we don't know what yeah. the stakes are. Uh, when you give all that context to a film, it, it helps us understand the stakes. And I think, you know, we've all seen movies where that's lacking. <laughs> and so the whole movie, you're like, well, I don't know, like if that character would survive this or how scary this is supposed to be, or would this kill him? But w in this movie, I feel like they do a good job of like adding that structure. So I, I yeah, totally it's agree. the worst when a movie breaks its own rules, right? That's always <laughs> exactly. frustrating. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, with that, uh, I wanted to kind of lead into talking about uh, Jim Hansen and Frank Oz, who both directed this film. I think, mm -hmm. in fact, it was the first movie that Frank Oz directed, uh, and he later went on to direct uh, Little Shop of Horrors, and I think... Classic. Yeah. And was it uh, Muppets Take Manhattan, I think, was the other one that he... I don't know which... I, I couldn't say which one of those he did. Yeah, he did another Muppet movie. Um, I believe that was the other one. I actually didn't know that Frank Oz uh, directed this. That's news to me. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Muppets Take Manhattan. Yeah, that was the other one that he directed. Um, yeah. So, I mean, he kind of stepped up and wanted to co-direct with Jim Henson, which I think makes sense. I mean, Jim Henson is the creator. He's directing it, but he's also a puppeteer. I mean, that's what he yeah, is. Yeah, he's, he's one of the, one of the principal actors yeah. uh, and puppeteers for uh, Jen. Right. And so he and Frank Oz sort of understand each other and they know how they want this to look and how they want this to feel. So I thought yeah. that was pretty interesting. And it's weird that I didn't like it's strange that I didn't watch this movie more or have more awareness of it as a kid because I was a huge Muppet fan. I mean, like, I, I love the Muppets so much. Mm -hmm. So it's just funny that I never I don't know why it just wasn't really on my radar as much. But um in, I think it kind of exists as like kind of a weird redheaded stepchild almost yeah. to the to the Muppet franchise because of the the dark undertones and it's not typically the the lighthearted fare that you would associate with with uh, Henson. Oh, for sure. Like I had read that one of the things that kind of uh, I guess inspired the look of the film. I mean, you mentioned uh, was his name Brian Froud. Brian Froud, yes. Yeah, yeah. and also uh, Jim Henson had the this, these sketches on SNL called The Land of Gorge, which is kind of like a little bit before my time, but he had all these puppets in, in these sketches on SNL. And so I think that also kind of helped them see like, hey, this could be a little more adult and... And the yeah. creatures kind of look a little bit like the creatures in the Dark Crystal. And I was like, oh, man, I really want to go back and watch huh. a couple of those sketches because I definitely missed out on that. That's cool. Yeah, I think the original Muppets, like before the Muppets were even called that, Jim Henson's first sort of puppet shows were often very subversive. And they were they were mm. meant to be kind of disarming because they looked childish. And then they would have some sort of... Uh, 
shocking message or or they would be talking about something that kind of belied the the childish presentation. Oh, gotcha. Yeah, I, I saw some some facts like this on um, there's a, a video on YouTube. It's uh, the Dark Crystal Everything You Didn't Know by a Sci-Fi Wire. So I'll, I'll link that um, video that cool. in the show notes and I'll put it uh, online as well. But yeah, it, it had a lot of stuff on there like that. Um, also that the composer was Trevor Jones, who also composed mm-hmm. movies like Dark City, which is like one of my favorite movies. Oh, so yeah. Like, I've heard cool. you. I heard your episode for Dark City. <laughs> that was yeah. like the worst episode we have because it's like 20 minutes. <laughs> it was like edited on an iPhone. Because <laughs> no, that was your one. first one, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah. No, yeah. I get it. <laughs> yeah. We've actually talked about like redoing that episode because. No, like, don't oh, do that. So much don't, rewind. <laughs> don't, don't do that. Go forward. It's wholesome and beautiful. I love there it. There you go. It was, don't it do was organic. Um, but yeah, so I mean, you know, I thought that was really interesting, and um, I think the music adds a lot to this film as well. So just kind of a interesting aside. Um, yeah, great, great main theme. That mm-hmm. kind of like uh, triumphant uh, orchestral theme. That uh, again, going back to the the whole um, the balancing act between two different things. If I remember correctly, the the main theme of the movie is like a, a combination of a version of the Skeksis theme and a version of the Gelfling theme. Oh, that's or, or the Or the Mystics. So in, spoiler alert, in much the same way that those two races are connected, the music comes together in a sort of connected universal way too. Ah, oh, yes. Well, I think it's time that we delve into some of your favorite scenes or if you want to talk about the movie chronologically, either way, I'm like, let's dive in. Okay. Yeah. Uh, well, so um, this movie's kind of, uh, like you said, it's a little confusing. It's dense and there's a lot that happens and you're sort of dropped in to the culmination of this thousand year prophecy of uh, you've got this broken world and uh, races are dying and the earth is scorched and things are, are terrible and you've got this nasty race of snake lizard monster creatures that are in control and there's a a cataclysm on the horizon and you just kind of have to hit the ground running with that and uh there's there's a little bit of exposition early on where it sort of tells you you're in this age of wonder and um you're introduced to these three main races Mm -hmm. you've got the skexies which are in in the castle and clearly very evil. (laughs) And uh, then you've got the mystics, which are like the polar opposites. So where the, the Skeksis are kind of decadent and cruel and there's all this infighting, the mystics are harmonious and natural and they've got all of these like quiet rituals and almost um, native American in a way, Yeah, the the way they, they look and and feel. And then the third race are, are these, uh, the, the close that it comes to humans in this movie are the, the Gelflings. And there's just, uh, in the beginning of the movie, there's just the one, the, the main character, Jen, who's our, our hero. And so he's kind of presented with the standard hero's journey of, uh, you're, you're the chosen one. You've got this prophecy to fulfill. And, um, he's, he's sent on his way after his, uh, master slash adopted father dies. Yeah, and, uh, and, and that character is a mystic, right? Yes. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah. So since he's the he's the last of his race, he was kind of adopted and protected, and he does not know at the time. Though the the audience uh, is kind of informed through narration and and that sort of thing that he's going to play a, a critical role in the the fulfillment of this prophecy and try and bring unity back to the world. Right. And as as his uh, I guess adopted father is dying. What does he tell him? I, I wondered about that. I was like, he doesn't give he, him all the answers. Like he does it like a Dumbledore, right? Where he's yeah, like, yeah. <laughs> it's you've always got to have like the the mysterious elder who doesn't give you quite everything that you need. Uh, a Dumbledore or, or a Gandalf. Gandalf, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So he tells him he's he's got to go to uh, to this um, seer slash astrologist named Agra. And uh, he gives directions to find to find her and to seek out a shard, but doesn't really tell him what he's supposed to do with it. He's just supposed to seek this out, and then he dies. And uh, at the same time, in parallel, back at uh, the Skeksis castle, uh, their leader dies also. And it's it's interesting to to watch those two different death scenes because they're so indicative of kind of like the underlying nature of these races. When the mystic dies, he just kind of fades away gently into sparkly nothingness. And when the Skeksis Emperor dies, he crumbles away into this like pile of dust. And all of the other Skeksis are basically just perched on the bedside like predatory birds waiting for him to die. And it's it's just such a cool um, dichotomy between the two of them. Yeah, and it's something that I feel like I didn't pick up on until the end because they kind of, I, I don't want to jump too far ahead, but they give you a big hint at the end. And then I had to kind of go back and read a little bit. And I was like, oh, I get it. <laughs> yeah, one there's of the some, things that is rewarded, I think, by a second viewing for sure. Definitely. Yeah, there's some some subtle hints about the nature of these races and what, what they have in, in common and how it is that they are are linked and everything. And yeah, throughout the movie, they, they it gets... Uh, less and less subtle until uh, they just come out and tell you what's going on. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But uh, the uh, interesting thing about the Skeksis, um, part of the uh, design statement around them is that they are meant to uh, personify different sins or vices. Oh, yeah, so, I heard that. So, yeah, there's um, I think there's 10... There's probably, I, I think it's 10, 10 or a dozen or something like that. So not quite the seven deadly sins, but they, um, they each have kind of like a, an aesthetic. So you've got like a fat one that's, you know, always eating and you've got one that's really sort of, um, dainty and sort of pretentious kind of, and then you've got one that's really, uh, strong and, and one's a, like kind of a mad scientist sort of thing. And, uh, I think it is not really a, a failing of the movie, but it's too bad that they never are able to really go into those those roles or anything. Like they're they're present, and they they all have these sort of jobs and and qualities, and that comes through in the character building. But it's never really explored very much because we, as the audience, are brought in right at the end of their their reign. So we never we don't get to see them outside of this kind of crisis resolution. Yeah, no, I I have to admit that I did notice that they were all different, but I didn't pick up on that until I read that about that that correlation between 
personifying vices and sins. So that that's really cool. I have to go back and pay more attention to that part. I, I have to say right off the bat, watching it again, I was like, wow, you know, uh, the, 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 the design of the puppets is incredible. And, you know, the whole time we're kind of wondering how they do it. Um, and so when I was watching the behind the scenes, I thought, man, that's just so ingenious how they had, uh, like they're inside of it. And then they have like, sort of like a little computer screen where they're operating stuff. So like physically operating. Oh yeah. They have a a monitor so that they can see outside of the costume. Yeah. Yeah. And so they're like, there's a couple things happening there. Yeah. They have a way to see outside of it. They're operating the body, I guess, with their body but then also the head is like all electronic and yeah it's like after a while you're like either there's a lot of hands in there or yeah. there has to be more going on than that and yeah how just... many people are in there and right. and just to remind the audience this was in like 1978 when yeah. they were doing all of this it was released in 82 but they spent like four or five years making this where a lot of the animatronics and everything were not really that sophisticated they were using like um, like the wires on that you'd have like on bicycle brakes <laughs> to do these sort of like plunger type movements and uh, different kinds of like inflated layers and all sorts of crazy things. But it it's worth it because there's very little in the movie that is not a practical effect. Mm-hmm. There's, there's a little bit of green screen, a little bit of animation, but it's v- used very sparingly. And as a result, everything just feels real and authentic because they are real uh subjects being filmed and, right. and the, the eye can tell mm-hmm. that yeah very much so and uh you know I, I i've read some comments online that were like you know that would be terrible if it was like all cg and things like that i do yeah. sort of like admire um sometimes i feel like we've gotten so used to CG that there's all these other forms of animation or maybe you could say like creative filmmaking that sort of Mm -hmm. get forgotten about. And it's like, I love it when directors sort of try to go back in time a little bit and do something like this. Like, you know, just thinking of like the the, uh, fantastic Mr. Fox or, you know, Oh yeah. Like the stop motion, Mm -hmm. uh, like a Leica studios. I think that's how you pronounce it. That did, um, like Coraline and Paranorman and mm-hmm. Kubo and the Two Strings, all that stop motion type stuff is great. Yeah, because it's like, in a way, yes, you could sort of jump ahead and do more, but you could also like do more with what you had before in the sense of like, imagine if they made like a puppet movie of this level now and not do CG, but do what Jim Hansen, you know, sort of envisioned. Like, I think that would yeah. actually be cooler. Uh, well, hopefully that's what they're going to do with the, oh, with the Netflix, right? Yeah, with the yeah. Netflix series. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I hope that's what they're doing. I, I actually have next to no information except the existence of such a thing. I don't know if it's going to be puppets or animated or what. I would like very much for it to be puppets again. I bet it would be. I feel like fans would just be too upset <laughs> if it wasn't. I hope so. Fingers yeah. crossed. Yes, yes. But yeah, no, I, I, I agree. I like the design of the, the two main races and then the third Gelfling race. And I, I do think that's clever. It is sort of like Tolkien S to like stick with uh, the main character sort of looking human, but not being human. You know, I kind of like that. Yeah. Especially since they exist so much as like a, an audience surrogate, Jen, especially mm-hmm. he's, he goes through this whole movie kind of a little bit clueless and people are constantly <laughs> explaining things to him. Very convenient. And yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it's good that he's human. 
Yeah. Um, little little side tangent on that too. I remember uh, it may have even been in the same behind the scenes thing. Uh, they talked about how they were designing the creatures' movements and how they um, they employed at the studio all these uh, dancers and mimes oh. and things to to try and teach the puppeteers and the actors different kinds of movement. And because the mystics and the skexies aren't human, they were able to come up with new movements. And they said that um, it was actually the Gelflings that were hardest to do realistically because they wanted to avoid – they were humanoid, so you knew how they would look if they were walking. But they wanted to avoid that kind of classic Muppet hop <laughs> that you see where they're <laughs> kind of like bobbing along. They didn't yeah. want it to look silly, but it was difficult to get them to look like a, an authentic bipedal – when you can only see like their torso. So that's so true. And, and I think the weight to them, like some of the costumes in this movie or puppets rather, but there's someone in them. They're so heavy and cumbersome that they feel like a little bit more grounded. Whereas some, something as light as the Gelflings, it's more obvious. Yeah. And it's like, it does call back a little bit to like the Muppet movies, you know, you can tell that they're on strings and that they're not uh -huh. puppets, but that's fine in the Muppet movies because you know, it's sort of like a th fourth wall breaking, like, we're Muppets, you know, it, that. Yeah, it's understood. Right. But in this, it's like uh, the rules are a little bit different. So, yeah, I could see them having to tackle that from a different angle. It's pretty interesting. So, uh, Jen begins his quest and he meets this uh, fantastic <laughs> creature who is uh, who's known as Agra. And she leads him into this amazing set. Uh, which is her Ori that has this uh, mechanism that shows all the movements of the planets and and everything. And she's a, a prophetess and a seer and um, explains to him that uh, she has the shard. Uh, he's able to to get it from her. But he she, again, isn't quite able to explain to him what it is that he's exactly supposed to do before the Skeksis henchmen uh, show up. Uh, these are the um, the Gartham, is what they're called, and they're these gigantic, super scary-looking lobster monster crab type things. And um, as often as I watched this as a kid, those things always scared the crap out of me. <laughs> they're just because they're these gigantic, hulking beetle crab monsters, and they just crush crash through everything. And um, they're just like very terrifying. They have that awful rattling noise that they make Ugh. that is just like very scary to me. Yeah. And like the actors or puppeteers that were inside them, they had to like keep giving them breaks because it was so heavy and like suffocating. Oh, I can't imagine. Ugh. It's like three times the size of a human, like three people wide. Mm -hmm. So I, I, you know, fundamentally like that there's a person in there, but I don't understand how they did it. Yeah, the, you don't see that. Like, when, when you watch them move and stuff, it's not like you see legs or something. <laughs> yeah, it's very... Right, mean. right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I like the design of o 
what, how, how do you say her name again? It's Agra. Agra. I'm just so afraid yeah. of mispronouncing names in this movie. Um, I got your back. Don't worry about you, it. Thank you. You're the expert. You will help me with this. So Agra, I, I had watched like a behind the scenes where Frank Oz, I think it was Frank Oz was talking about how she was like his favorite character in terms of like design. Yeah, she's so great. Yeah. She's so great. He's like, she's so, you know, intentionally like hideous, but it's beautiful at the same time because there's just so much attention to detail in that puppet. And also just conventionally different because usually the, you know, the prophet in the movie is, uh, happens to be male. And this time they decided to go a uh, female. And they said, you know, that right. was like an interesting, different choice. And it just made her character just was a little bit more uh, interesting, I guess, to Frank Oz. And so he talked about that. I thought that was, that was. Yeah. Cool. And she's so, she's, she's helpful, but in kind of an ambiguous way, yeah. especially later on, you're not quite sure like where, where she's coming from, but she's also just, she's just kind of, you can tell she's so old and she's just over it and she's <laughs> kind of salty and she's not afraid of anything anymore. And the, the Gartham are, are busting into her home and tearing everything up and she's more irritated than anything else. It's like, ah, you know, you couldn't have just called or something and, and told me what you wanted. <laughs> you had to come and burn my whole house down. Right. And uh, yeah, she's, she's amazing. Yeah. And I like it when um, I guess in, in a similar way to the, uh, the mystic that raised Jen, um, I, I, you know, it's not like they ever say, I guess what age Jen is, but since he is sort of like a circuit for the audience, the audience tends to be younger. I think of him as a kid. Mm -hmm. um, he's young. And I like it when movies have that, dynamic that children have with adults where especially when they're not like related to them or they're not super familiar with them where so, you know some adults are like hi I you know I can't wait to get to know you and I just love children and then some adults are like very standoffish and like <laughs> yeah, you know and definitely. like this they're not they don't know what to do with kids they don't know how to communicate with them and so I always kind of like when they include that in a movie because I feel like that's a big thing like as a kid that you deal with a lot. So I thought yeah, that's, that's cool. an authentic <laughs> relationship. So mm -hmm. it's not always friendly and upbeat and helpful. So, yeah. Also, I love in her house, uh, that contraption you mentioned, what's that called again? An Ori, An is, Ori. The, is the name of that, uh, kind of like astrological model of all the planets and stars and everything. Man, when they were, when they showed a behind the scenes of them, like moving that thing around and moving the puppets, I was like, wow, this is very yeah. complicated. Yeah. Yeah. That's a hugely complicated set because it's, that's a real prop that they made mm -hmm. and they had to time all of it and everything. And then you've got the puppeteers moving in and around it. It's really phenomenal that they did it. Yeah, yeah, it, it looked really, really cool. I was kind of like, I wish I had all the, you know, I don't have this on, on like Blu-ray or anything. So I didn't have like access to every behind the scene. I was kind of limited to what I saw on YouTube. So I was mm -hmm. like, oh, I need to see more about this. It's just really interesting. Um, so, so yeah, so the, uh, the henchmen of the Skeksis break in. Well, so he escapes uh -huh. at the last oh, escapes, minute yeah, and they, right. uh, he escapes into the, into the nearby forest and um you you uh kind of see agra's home burning and exploding in the background so her her fate is kind of left unknown uh, for the time yeah. being but jen escapes into the woods where he kind of comes across a number of these just fantastically designed and interesting creatures and 
animals and wildlife and the the forest itself is basically alive even the even the plants and the ground itself has sort of a personality to it which is it that just speaks to brian froud's genius and how he sort of did a lot of the creature and concept design for a lot of these things you've got all of these weird creatures that have their own sort of alien movement and call and and everything but it all feels real it feels like that's a real environment and everything but of of course the most interesting thing that he comes across is uh our other main heroine which is kira who is the other last gelfling on earth (laughs) Uh, they both each thought that they were the last one but uh they meet and he's surprised to, to see somebody like him yeah, and uh, so a couple quick things. Number one, you mentioned Brian Froud, and I know, I think that uh, Jim Henson was familiar with his work because he designed like some covers for some some books, right? Is that how they kind of connected? I, I think so. If I remember correctly, yeah. Um, Froud was an illustrator for a lot mm-hmm. of different things in England. And um, yeah, Henson saw some of his work and asked if he wanted to come and and work on a project. And I think at that point, they didn't know what the project would be. Oh, wow. And so, so they just brought Brian Froud in and basically put him to work and said, all right, let's start coming up with stuff and workshopping. And then they eventually were able to put together a treatment for a story that at the time was just called The Crystal. And right. uh, then that, that eventually became the movie. Okay, okay. And then with Kira... I have to say, her character has a lot of, like, her character plays out differently than I think I imagined she would. Um, You know, we can get into it as we go on, but, like, I feel like the standard would be, like, you know, boy meets girl, and girl, uh, oh, no, she's in trouble, Uh, he's got to save her, like, but that that kind of happens, but she's got a lot of her own, like, emotion and character arc, and... I don't know. I was yeah, just really she's, impressed with she's how she's handled. She's a great character because, yeah. yeah, she's she's not a damsel in distress. She's not really even a love interest per se. And so often, like the main female lead is relegated to these roles. But um, again, going back to this uh, two parts of a whole dichotomy yeah. kind of thing, Jen grew up in an isolated place in a very small kind of area so he's he's not worldwise the way she is and she grew up out in the world and so she has a lot more practical knowledge jen's studied he's academic but he doesn't really know a lot about what's going on in the world and she's got like street smarts kind of Mm -hmm. and she's tough and she can hunt and and paddle a boat and she knows about all the animals and how to talk to them and everything so she has real legitimate strengths that complement the hero and they're not just like you know they complement each other they really are two halves right and it it, she's not just like an afterthought or or anything like that oh definitely and i think you know one of my complaints about when you do have a character like that whether it be you know, a love interest or even sometimes like a kid, you know, or a sidekick is like, Mm -hmm. there's a tendency to sort of just use that character as a means to an end of like, 
you know, just adding conflict to the story, like, oh, no, now they're in trouble. Or like you mentioned, right. damsel in distress. Or, But you're always kind of like, why doesn't this person just not deal with it? And so, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, they don't seem like they're complimenting each other. And so in this movie, when they do, that does make it a lot more interesting. And, and it, it makes it more, like, understandable. And her being more, I guess, informed than he is about who she is and where she comes from. This this is the scene where they share like that dream, right? Where they see each other's past. Yeah, yeah. They they have a uh, again. It's it's one of those things that the movie doesn't entirely explain why why they're able to do that. But they when they touch for the very first time, they're able to just like kind of share memories, and they they can experience a lot of each other. And then they uh, kind of immediately are have this intimate connection. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I thought that was a good idea because there's so much world building in the movie and there there was already a lot of exposition. I feel like if they had to go, oh, well, when I was a kid, this happened. Oh, well, yeah. we, you know, it's <laughs> yeah. like you would be like, all right, like by doing this shared dream kind of thing, like number one, it's cool. It's like a neat concept. Yeah, and to see the little baby Gelfling Muppets yeah, and everything was very cute. It was very cute. And, and also like, again, uh, it plays into that whole you know, two halves, one whole thing. Like mm-hmm. you could argue that maybe their connection is just because of that too, you know, right. um, sort of like a collective consciousness type thing. I don't know, but they don't explain it, but I mean, you kind of get that that's part of the theme. So um, I, I really liked that part and it catches the audience up really quick. Cause you know, I think yeah, mechanically it's good for the audience yeah. to, to kind of get that burst of exposition. Yeah. Yeah. Without it being the same. Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> so uh, Kira takes Jen home to meet um, her adopted family. So while Jen was raised by the uh, mystics, Kira was raised by this race of little potato people. <laughs> I remember when I was a kid, we called them the potato people, but they're, uh, they're referred to as podlings in the That's in the, right, uh, podlings. In okay. the movie. And they have this, um, they have their own society and language and culture and everything again they put so much into developing like an authentic race Mm -hmm. just to kind of have in the background almost and uh i remember reading that the um the language that the podlings speak is um they didn't subtitle it or anything so you don't know what they're actually saying Mm -hmm. uh except in context from how uh kira responds to them and just sort of Visually, you can kind of tell a little bit about what someone might be saying, but there's actually um, words and phrases of uh, Polish and Eastern European languages like mixed in there. Oh, so neat. when they so when they did it with test audiences, like every once in a while, you'd have someone in the audience that would pick up on some of the words, but <laughs> but it's not a real language, so it'd be like a bunch of gibberish and then table. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's funny. They're like, I see what you did there. Yeah. Yeah, so um, Kira sort of introduces Jen to her her family, and it seems like for a moment maybe Jen found what he was looking for all along, and maybe this quest isn't that important after all, and he's kind of found some harmony after losing uh, part of his family, and then once again uh, the Skeksis influence crashes into this world, and the Gartham uh, return, and destroy the podling village and uh, make off with a bunch of the uh, 
a bunch of Kira's family. Yeah. yeah. And and then uh you know, Jen blames himself, right? Right. And then yeah, Kira's he, like, mm, they come all the time. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, they they always come. And yeah. we um uh, they're interspersed in all of this we, we kind of glossed over what was happening back at castle evil uh the uh the skexies are um doing a lot of struggling and infighting with each other right. and one of the when the emperor died there was a, a power struggle and the the general of the gartham um becomes the new emperor and he banishes his uh, rival who is known as the the Chamberlain and um, so the banished Chamberlain is actually uh, working towards trying to bring the Gelflings back to the castle on his own not under any sort of uh, uh, what am I trying to say yeah it's like he's not he's he's got his own motivation rather than yeah he's yeah, yeah. he's got his own agenda basically yeah. and uh, so He's trying to lure the Gelflings back to the castle so that he can regain some of his control right. and his his station. He's been he's been banished, and the the Chamberlain's just like this real slimy, skeezy kind of guy, and he's got this um, sort of obnoxious, oh my gosh, uh, yes. whimpering <laughs> noise, right? Like, <laughs> and I one of my one of my memories of this movie is when uh, my brother and I would watch it. I would always make that noise. Because that's such a little brother. That's such a little brother thing to do is to you know make that weird whimpering noise. And my brother hated it just as much as the other characters in the movie do. But yeah, so the um, the Chamberlain actually intervenes and he stops the Gartham from taking Jen and Kira so they can escape uh, as a means of trying to um, kind of trick him into trusting him a little bit. Right. But uh, but they they escape in the night and uh the next morning they come across some some ruins uh which again offers some more audience and character exposition because we got to make sure everybody is on the same page about this this prophecy and and they kind of learn what it is exactly that they are supposed to do which is that jen must use the shard that he got from agra and put it back into the crystal heal the crystal basically and that will bring about the the end of this reign of terror. Right. And uh, isn't this the part where he finds out if he doesn't, the Skeksis will like live forever and like nothing good will ever happen again or something like that? Yeah. 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 The, his his master had kind of hinted at that a little bit. But yeah, it's it becomes very clear at this point that the, the stakes are high, that the, the, the uh, great conjunction as it's called this astrological event is coming and that's the time that they have left to do this or the skexies will stay in power forever yeah and i think like all these little you know moments to explain things further like giving the audience like a little bit at the time at a time is a good idea and i wonder how much of that was re like shot because i think uh, you know, they screened it and audiences were kind of confused. And so they had to go back and add like a little bit more explanation. And oh, I, I hadn't heard that, but that wouldn't surprise me at all. <laughs> yeah, I think, I think that's, that's what I read. They didn't have time to like, I don't think they had time to like change things too much, but they had to kind of make it more concrete and more of like a 
through line. Um, Mm -hmm. And I think that's a really good way to do it. Just give it to us in little doses so that we're not just, you know, there's one way you could do it where we sit there for 20 minutes and get all this information at once. But by breaking it up um, into different, I guess, acts, if you want to put it that way, of Mm -hmm. of, of this movie, like, that kind of helps, I think. But yeah, that's where you find out like, oh, you know, not only does he need to do this, but he's got to do it soon. (laughs) Right. Right. Yeah. So things are, things are starting to um, kind of come to a head here. So now that they've got their mission, um, things are sort of uh, coalescing and reaching this, uh, this convergence on earth while the heavens themselves are also aligning. Uh, The, the remaining mystics back in Jen's Valley have also by this time um, mobilized. They they leave the valley and they just start walking. And these uh, we didn't really talk about them very much, but they're very like they're kind of slow, ponderous, almost like turtle-like creatures. And so they just start walking about halfway through the movie, um, just walking somewhere, and we don't know exactly, but it becomes clear eventually that they are um, sort of just uh, relentlessly marching to the castle for some purpose. We don't know exactly what it is, but just as these other forces are converging, they too are coming to the place where it is all going to come together because they, they have a part to play. Yeah. And it was kind of fun to watch this. Like I said, I know I saw it growing up here and there, caught it on TV. It's kind of cool to watch it after not having seen it for so long because I definitely watched it with questions. I was like, what is this all adding up to? You know, it was kind of fun being like surprised and uh, not knowing what to expect. Totally. Yeah. So uh, Jen and Kira employ the aid of um, what is probably my favorite creature in this movie. Uh, these are these are um, creatures called land striders, which are sort of like a bat horse on stilts kind of looking thing. I'm not <laughs> that's that's the best description I can come up with. But uh, these are fantastic creatures. I love them so much. And Kira um, uses her ability to to speak with them and uh, get them to to take them swiftly to the castle so that they can try and get there and and complete this mission and um so they ride back to the castle and upon reaching it they see the gartham that attacked the village that have all of uh kira's family all kind of wrapped up in these baskets and nets and everything and um in in what i think is really probably one of her most badass moments kira just charges in there there's like half a dozen of these giant lobster creatures and she's on this weird stilt horse and she's like, she doesn't think twice. She just charges in there because her family's in danger. So she goes in there and starts a fight and they're able to um, fight off the Gartham long enough for her family to escape. And for as much as Jen is the hero of the story in the traditional sense, this is just like another example of how Kira is pulling a lot of the, the she's doing a lot of the heavy lifting in this, honestly. Mm-hmm. Like as far as making sure that um, people are safe and that that uh, everybody gets to where they need to be. Like Jen could not have done this without her. 
Right. And I think those are my favorite adventure stories. You know, uh, we talked a little bit about like Tolkien or referenced Harry Potter um, Mm -hmm. stories where there is a main like chosen one. But the reality is they can't accomplish (laughs) their mission without their team or, you know, without support. And I think that's. You know, it helps on a couple levels. Number one, it makes the the main character a little more relatable because you're like, you know, if he's he's incredible and can do everything by himself, you're kind of like, well, I, I can't relate to that. But if he's yeah. sort of more human and needs support, that just seems more credible, even though it's like fantasy. So, yeah, I think it's a good choice to have Kira have that role. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. yeah so they, uh, they infiltrate the castle and are... Um, they're kind of briefly separated. The The Chamberlain has followed them back to the castle and uh, they sneak in underground and they're able to um, kind of make their way inside. And the Chamberlain ambushes them, um, dispatches with Jen temporarily and kind of whisks Kira back up to the castle and um, presents her as a prize to the new emperor. And... At this point, the the Skeksis all know of this prophecy. They know that the Gelflings are dangerous to them and are going to bring about the end of their world. And so one of the Skeksis is like, all right, we got to kill her. We're sworn to it. We got to kill her right away. But the scientist Skeksis proposes that they um, essentially try to drain Kira of her... her, um, her essence is what they call it, but they're they're gonna they're gonna try and um, in an almost vampiric way kind yeah. of drink her drink her life force to gain power. And, and yeah, and is there an implication that that's what happened to all the Gilflings? Like that they have lived that their the Skeksis have survived off of their essence, or is that I don't know? I it, just wondered it's, about that. I think that's. Definitely implied. I don't know if that's a hundred percent canonical or not. I think it just as easily could be. Yeah. Uh, they they talk about how the the Skeksis have survived since this this the sundering of the crystal for a thousand years, and they they draw their power from the crystal and mm-hmm. and everything. But yeah, there's definitely references to them having done this kind of experiment in the past. Like the scientist says that it it works better when it's Gelflings, and and so yeah, yeah I. Yeah. It's not clear if they slaughtered all the Gelflings or if they've been doing this all along. But, uh, yeah, it's definitely this very nasty, nefarious experiment that they perform on her. And um, that was another one of, like, the creepiest parts of the movie because it's this kind of uh, – they, they reflect the light from the crystal into their eyes and it sort of stuns and hypnotizes them and then their bodies shrivel and you yeah. you see them perform this experiment once before on on one of the podlings and it's horrific like for a kids movie again <laughs> asterisk <laughs> but it's it's a really awful scene and mm-hmm. it it kind of it sucks the 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 will to fight out of the podling slaves and so then it's like the slaves themselves are kind of doing it to their own people and that's just really that's icky. <laughs> you know, it's, it it's awful. These Skeksis are bad news, man. But nothing holds Kira back, even when no. this is happening. <laughs> yeah, no. She's, because of her connection with Jen, uh, she's able to kind of fight a little bit longer. And 
Um, Agra, we learn, had been brought back to the castle. We kind of skipped over that scene, but she's uh, the Gartham bring her back to the castle, and she's locked away. Uh, and she encourages Kira to to fight back and to call out to the other animals in the in the castle to rise up and overthrow the the Skeksis that got them imprisoned. So they're able to dispatch that Skeksis by shoving him into this uh, big chamber of fire, basically, that is uh, underneath the crystal. And that's when you get another sort of insight into the connection between the Skeksis and the mystics, because as that Skeksis burns up, it shows us the, it shows the audience what the mystics are doing and they're trundling along doing their, their journey and the corresponding mystic in their group also burns up instantly. Yeah, and I was so confused you... about that at first. I was like, oh, is there like an evil connection? Like that one's yeah. pretending to be a mystic? Like at first, I wasn't sure what that meant. I mean, it's clear now, like when you go back and, and you put piece all that together that they've sort of been hinting at this duality type connection. Right. But, you know, I didn't realize that at first. Yeah, go ahead. Sorry. <laughs> yeah. Oh, no, no. And so that's that. Uh, um, that's just kind of a uh, like a signal again to the audience that there's something greater going on. There's a, a connection here. Mm-hmm. So um, Kira escapes and uh, she and Jen are running around the castle trying to find each other. Uh, the Skeksis are coming into the, the crystal chamber and everything's poised for uh, a giant climax You've got everybody's um, coming together and converging just as the conjunction is about to happen. So there's this giant window above the crystal, and you can see the the three suns are starting to align, and everything's getting really tense. And um, uh, Jen has the shard. He sees the crystal. He knows what he's got to do. Um, he in a in a moment of bravery, he leaps out onto the crystal and drops the shard. And uh, I remember being so angry as a kid. I was like, come <laughs> on, man. <laughs> that was that was just such a uh, – it felt like such a bonehead move almost. Because um, yeah, it's like you had one job, man. But, uh, <laughs> but um, the, uh, the Skeksis are, are scrabbling and trying to get the, the crystal. And um, Kira swoops down. She's able to get it. And she's able to get it back up to Jen – who is perched on top of the crystal, but only by sacrificing herself. She's stabbed in the back by one of the Skeksis. And that is also very hard to watch. Yes. Um, Cause she's like, cause, I mean her voice, like she's like a little girl and it's so brave. And you're like, Oh, they got this far. And then that happens. I was yeah, like, and then no. she dies. <laughs> yeah, <it was> like, <laughs> like she, she is stabbed in the back and, collapses down and uh yeah like the um i said earlier you know they got mimes and dancers and all these people that are um involved in movement and and human dynamics and everything when kira is stabbed in the back it looks real like it is a puppet i know when i intellectually that it's just a puppet but it is a like it's a really kind of a chilling image to see this fair, beautiful creature getting 
taken out like that. It's yeah. it's pretty intense. And when she's the way they positioned her body, like after she fell, I thought looked really good too. Like it almost just looked like a person laying there. The way they had her hair sort of like fanned out and that her arm yeah. positioning. Like I thought it looked really authentic. I thought that added a lot of weight to that scene. It just stood out yeah. to me. Yeah. And plus I was just like what i was so upset when she died i mean it's like on the one hand i, I was like i'm pretty sure they'll bring her back at the end but i i just i was upset by it. It, it the the moment had weight regardless of whether or not she came back i thought i thought it definitely very well yeah and so uh with with that sacrifice jen's able to uh summon the courage he plunges the the shard back into the crystal fulfilling the prophecy uh, the conjunction happens at exactly that moment. And there's this shaft of almost holy light that comes down and it blasts out and begins to transform everything. Mm-hmm. So having having completed this this act, the true nature of everything that we've seen up to that point begins to be revealed. All this darkness and corruption in the castle begins to crumble away. And at that moment, as intended all along the mystics arrive in in the crystal chamber and the skexies are horrified to see them there even though they're they don't come off as particularly dangerous or menacing it's obvious that the skexies are horrified that they would be there and um we we finally see what what is the real connection here what what actually happened and the the light of the crystal shines through the mystics in a weird kind of magic way, but it's all very magic. So that's fine. (laughs) And um, it draws the Skeksis. Each mystic has a Skeksis that it's kind of bonded to and it draws it back into itself. And the two become one, they become a new being. And uh, these giant sort of creatures of light, almost, I'm not really even sure how to authentically describe them, but uh, they're, um, they explain that they are the original keepers of the crystal and uh. that in their, in their arrogance, they had shattered it. And in doing so, they split into two forms. They had this, the dual nature of themselves were split into two different kind of physical manifestations of themselves and that it, ruined the countryside but through jen's bravery and sacrifice he was able to repair that rift and so they are i guess super powerful because they're able to just bring kira back to life which is great i like that uh and um then they kind of bequeath the the crystal and the castle and the whole rest of the world they say you've healed it the world's yours now so make it in your own image and then they just kind of ascend and that's the end of the movie. Very cool. Nice. Okay. So, Oh, oh, also when the Skeksis start to lose power, their little minions die too. I noticed. Oh yes. The Gartham collapse. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The Gartham collapse. The podlings are, uh, I guess the, the spell or whatever it is that was, controlling them through the through the light of the crystal is dismissed and so they're they're healed in that way so uh augur is free uh kira's little uh pet monster Fizzgig is safe and sound every everybody gets out of it alive uh yep. except except for the skexies <laughs> yeah 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 
Uh, and yeah, and then it's that whole like, see, this was all leading up to this balance idea. <laughs> like, I like, yeah, that. it's a good wrap up. I mean, you can kind of, you can really tell that like, um, we, we talked a little bit about how it took a while to get this into production and it was sort of like an idea that Jim Henson mulled over and got a lot of input on and build slowly. And mm -hmm. I feel like he really wrapped up all the loose ends with that. Like, it just makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Yeah, I, I feel like it's it's one of those things where it's there's a lot going on, and you're really only part you're you're only able to view this one part of the story, but I always found it extremely fulfilling, even though I don't know everything that happened before, and I'm left to wonder what will happen in the future. Like that, you get to see this one part is extremely satisfying. I think it's a great adventure. Yeah. No. Totally. Um. So that, that leads me to my last couple of questions for you. Sure. Uh, number one, what keeps you coming back to this movie? I mean, I feel like you've spent, you know, some time here today explaining why you like it so much in a way. Yeah. But, but if you were to summarize, like, why, why do you think you keep watching it? I think it's because I, when I watch it, I feel like I'm looking at a real place. It feels like an authentic environment with real creatures and, and plants and animals. And I just get a lot of joy out of that. Even, even though it's kind of a scary story and um, you don't get all of the details, it's enjoy and it's, it's enjoyable to me to live in that world for 90 minutes because it's just so rich. There's just, so much there. I feel like I'm always noticing little, little details and everything every time I watch it. Oh, no, I completely understand that. Yeah, I think like growing up, I didn't watch a lot of fantasy. And so a lot of it was like kind of not on my radar. And so I always find it really interesting to see movies like this and talk about somebody that is, I think, more of a fan of that genre, because it, it kind of gives me a window into I guess what I kind of missed out on by not by <laughs> right? not seeing yeah. these kind of movies that makes a lot of sense. Well, what would you say to someone that's never seen this movie before? Like, how would you pitch it? Well, I definitely wouldn't pitch it as a kids' movie. <laughs> <laughs> um, that dis despite the fact that it is puppets, that is just the that's the language. But that it's it is a uh, classic high fantasy story it's a a hero's journey kind of thing and it's an examination about our ourselves and our nature and how our actions have impact and how there's multiple sides to every kind of person and form and uh that you if you go into it with an open mind you'll get a lot out of it yeah well you're preaching to the choir on that one because i you know, I watch a lot of animated films, and mm -hmm. and I think that genre has that same problem where it's, like, considered just only for children exclusively, whereas yeah. I think it's, you know, it's art, right? I mean, watching this movie, watching how complex the puppets, the set design, the entire look and film, tone of the film, it, it it's just art, right? I mean, you're seeing, like, almost like a storybook come to life, and... You know, sometimes I wish that was not held back so much by the thought that, oh, this is just for kids, you know? Right. Because I think, like, I don't think that's the case at all. And it was surprising to me to watch this as an adult because it was so adult. And I think I had sort of unfairly put it in that category of, like, oh, it's fine, but, you know, it's, like, for kids. and Yeah, it's Muppets. Yeah. 
And, and even though I love Muppets, I thought this world, I could tell that it was supposed to be serious. And I, I guess I was worried that it wouldn't live up to that. But mm. it did. You know, it's it's not quite Fraggle Rock, which is sort of like in between, I guess, the two. Right. It's, it's definitely a, a more serious watch. Well, um, thank you so much for bringing this, uh, this film to my attention. I oh, really thank you for having me. It. This has been a blast. I had a yeah. really great time. Oh, and I forgot to mention at the top, I was going to start including when people gave me corrections from like last week's episode. Oh, okay. So real quick, last week we did uh, 2001 Space Odyssey. And David Wang, who he, I, he's on Twitter, I believe, and he's also in our Facebook group. He pointed out that me and Michael had a big mistake in our last episode where uh, the intermission is not after the monolith shrieks, but after we realize Hal is reading Dave and Frank's lips. So there's like a scene in that movie where there's like an intermission. You know how like some older movies had an intermission like in the middle of them. Sure. Um, and so uh, I don't have that intermission on my DVD at all. So I oh really it. interesting. Yeah. And um, and my, uh, Michael, my guest, asked me about it, and then he said when it was. And so David mentioned like that's not when it was. I mean, it's it's fine. <laughs> <laughs> you know when you when appreciate you talk, it david yeah thank you david uh it's like when we t- you know talk about movies all the time especially when i mean i edit but it's like it's really free-flowing thought and conversation here so uh it i make mistakes guests make mistakes it's not a big deal but hey, i did want to highlight yeah <laughs> that that he pointed that out and i think i'm going to start uh adding that into my episodes because i mean i don't mind that if you guys find something that you have a question on or something you notice that i forgot like reach out to me and we'll discuss it. So wanted to add that in there. Yeah. Um, and, and if you find any mistakes in this episode, um, please keep them to yourselves because I have a very <laughs> fragile ego and I, I can't be led to believe that I'm capable of mistakes. So. <laughs> um, but yeah, so, so thanks again, Curtis. And uh, where, where can people find you so they can hear your podcast? Sure. Yeah. So um, like I said before, uh, the D six Desperados is a, uh, gaming and entertainment podcast. We talk about tabletop games, video games, um, and uh, a lot of different stuff. We're currently doing two segments right now in rotation. We're doing Throwback Theater, which I mentioned earlier, and uh, that's where we take a movie and we just kind of uh, go through it and talk about it. We try not to rip it apart. Uh, we're we're not quite as objectively upbeat as you are, Lisa, which I <laughs> definitely appreciate. But uh, we try and have a good time with it. And uh, our other segment right now is we are playing a game of Dungeons and Dragons. And it is super weird. Um, I've never played a role-playing game before, and so this is very weird for me. And <laughs> hopefully it's weird in an enjoyable way for everyone else. But um, D6 Desperados is available on um, iTunes and pretty much every other um, podcast platform, any of the main platforms. You should be able to get it for uh, Android or or apple platforms perfect well thanks so much again and you're gonna have to pick another uh movie so that you can come back and do another episode this is a total blast thanks thanks i already know what movie i want to do yes i I, I don't know if you want me to claim it now or we'll wait just in case someone else has it but oh no go, go ahead go ahead i we we talked about this when we were um when we were at uh, the party after fan days, I would oh, yeah. love to dissect Hereditary. Oh my god! I listened to this like long review that uh, Now I'm Playing did, 
And yeah. I loved it. I was so scared to listen to their review because sometimes I don't agree with them and I get like all all hurt. I'm like, oh, <laughs> I really like that movie. I can't believe they said that. Uh, but with this one, they loved it so much. It just went on and on. And I was just like, yes, all the yes. So yeah, oh, I would great. love to discuss that movie. Perfect. 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 Okay. <laughs> right. Lock it down. I will. Since I, I can't will. do Labyrinth. Let me, let me do that one. <laughs> okay. Sounds good. Uh, thank you so much. And uh, see, see you next time. All right. Thanks, all right. Lisa. Bye.